I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. It may not be a busy planting month, but it's certainly the month for ordering seeds. My seed order is in and safely in a cardboard box under the bed in the spare room. But to-do lists aside, we have lots coming up on today's show. Fiona Davison will be introducing us to the first person to intentionally create a hybrid plant. It's through their activities, creating and cultivating and propagating plants for sale, that plants get into our gardens. Can music affect the way plants grow? Jonathan Drury, author of Around the World in 80 Plants, will explain all later in the show. And you imagine these guys, you know, just sort of hanging around, <laughs> not much to do, and they think, oh, well, let's play some loud sounds to these tomatoes and see what happens. And we'll be taking a look at the last item on our homemade drinks mini-series, elderflower cordial. You know, the chefs would turn up with these bags of elderflowers for the kitchen for that day. Yeah, it was a very special plant to them, and I think it is to a lot of people. Let's get into it. Now, as part of our book special back in December... We heard from Jonathan Drury. He's the author of Around the World in 80 Plants, a wonderful book that explores the science, history and cultural significance of a fascinating range of plants, from coffee to lotus. He's back to tell us about some more of his favourites. I grew tomatoes for the first time this year, and the tomato is just a fantastically interesting plant. So you probably know that tomato plants are buzz-pollinated. The way that works is that a bumblebee will come along. It raises its wing beat from its usual sort of humdrum beat of bumbling along and vibrates the wings at a, a kind of middle C. And this vibrates the pollen onto its body and off it flies and pollinates the next plant. And it's a fantastic kind of adaptation of the plant to have a sort of pollinator that will concentrate on it and focus its activities on getting the pollen elsewhere. That's amazing enough. But scientists in Korea have recently discovered that if you take green tomatoes, you can actually delay their ripening by about a week if you play a very loud high C for these plants. And you think, this is amazing on two levels. First of all, the science, and it actually affects the way that the ripening hormones are expressed in the plant. So the sound affects the sort of chemistry of the plant. 
But the second question is, how on earth did those people discover this? And you imagine these guys, you know, just sort of hanging around. <laughs> it was guys, I'm afraid, in this case, rather than women. Uh, you know, hanging around, you know, sort of uh, not much to do. And they think, oh, well, let's play some loud sounds to these tomatoes and see what happens. But yeah, you can delay ripening by a week. <laughs> Another plant that I rather like is Tillandsia or Spanish moss. It's not Spanish and it's not a moss. Its most close relation is probably the pineapple. It doesn't look anything like a pineapple. It, it hangs in these sort of curled drapes from trees in the deep south of the United States. It's the plant that you probably saw in Gone with the Wind. It's, uh, and it's an epiphyte. Epiphytes are plants that grow on the water vapour and the bits of dust and nutrient and bird poo and whatnot that are kind of in the air. They might support themselves on trees, but they don't actually have roots that go into the trees. So they're not a parasite, they're epiphytes. Sometimes they're called air plants and you can buy them in garden centres. One of the reasons I like this plant is that it's a great example to people. If I ask the question, what is it that plants are made of? A little seed weighs next to nothing and a tree weighs a lot. Where did all the stuff come from? And most people say, well, it comes out of the ground. Of course, if that was the case, then we'd have trucks driving around cities, sort of filling in all the earth that the plants have dragged out of it. But we don't have that. Obviously, the stuff doesn't come out of the ground, does it? And so you think, well, where does it come from? And the answer is that all the carbon in a tree has come out of carbon dioxide in the air. And that's what leaves do. And the epiphytes, plants like Tillandsia, are just a terrific example of this because you can say to people, look, those plants are just growing on telephone wires. They're getting everything they need from the air, the water vapour and the carbon dioxide. And so it's a lovely example of how plants actually grow. One of the other reasons I like Tillandsia is that it's got this fantastic association with creepiness. So in the deep south, this is a plant that it used to be used for sort of stuffing mattresses and things and uh, car seats in the 1920s. But it has this very strong association with voodoo and hoodoo, which is the sort of uh, offshoot of voodoo in Louisiana, where people would stuff dolls, and they still do, with this sort of rather creepy plant with its very, very thin curled leaves, like kind of witch's fingers. I think what they're getting at is the idea of nature untamed. This is something which is from the swamps and that we haven't really got quite control over. It's something very interesting, sort of psychological going on with Tillandsia stuffing hoodoo dolls. Thanks, Jonathan. As any keen allotment here will know, tomatoes can suffer terribly with blight. It used to be a real menace before plant breeders were able to create blight-free varieties. To do this, they combined different types of tomatoes into what is called a hybrid. It's all very clever stuff, and it's something we see in horticulture all the time. All this mixing and matching started with Thomas Fairchild, an 18th century nurseryman who is the first known person to intentionally produce an artificial hybrid plant, which he called Fairchild's Mule. History fanatic and our head of libraries, Fiona Davison, is here to tell us more. 
Thomas Fairchild, he was a very forward-looking gardener of his day. He corresponded with all of the major scientific figures of the day, people like Carl Linnaeus, and he also wrote to Mark Catesby, the plant hunter who's out in North America and bringing back lots of new plants. Very often Thomas Fairchild was one of the first to grow new plants. He was apparently one of the first people to attempt to grow banana in this country. But the reason we should remember him, well, I think there are two reasons we should remember Thomas Fairchild. He was the first person to successfully create an artificial hybrid when he crossed a sweet William and a carnation pink to create a brand new plant never seen before, which was known at the time as Fairchild's mule. It was called a mule because a mule is a cross between a donkey and a horse. And this was a cross between two different plants. And Thomas I mean, he's very proud of this, and he, he wrote papers for the Royal Society, but he was also a religious man, and there's a feeling that he felt that somehow he'd interfered in God's plan by creating a brand new plant, you know, something that only, you know, God was meant to be the creator. So in his will, he left a legacy to pay for a sermon to be said every year at St. Leonard's Church in Shoreditch, which was on the wonderful works of God in the creation, but it became known as the vegetable sermon because it always had to link back to plants. And there's some people think he did that because he felt guilty. Creating the first hybrid was a major breakthrough. Now, obviously, plants had crossed naturally before, you know, with bees pollinating one plant to another, and sharp-eyed gardeners had noticed natural crosses, and if they thought, you know, a new plant had a desirable characteristic, they would then propagate from that plant. But Thomas Fairchild is the first person to deliberately set out to create a new plant by hand, pollinating one plant with another. That's just a major breakthrough to deliberately breed plants in that way. And obviously it then just snowballed. And particularly in the later 18th century and 19th century, gardeners just ballooned in the number of different cultivated varieties that were available, taking on the mantle of plant creator, not just plant cultivator. The other reason we should remember Thomas is he wrote what we think was the first ever book devoted to urban gardening. It's called The City Gardener. He wrote it in 1722, have a copy of the first edition in the Lindley Library. And it's an amazing little book because he's preempting a lot of the things that we think of as modern concerns about city living. He talks about pollution and he talks about choosing your plants carefully because they were burning, even in the 1700s, early 1700s, they were burning a lot of sea coal in London, which is very dirty fuel, cheap but very dirty. So air quality was already very bad. And he recommends over 50 different plants that will survive in pollution. And obviously now we're thinking all the time about plants which can help us combat airborne particles and capture airborne particles and help us with pollution. So he's ahead of the game there. I think that a lot of his tips still hold good. He talks about the value of houseplants. He talks about how having window boxes can cheer even the dullest greyest street. He also recommends that when new houses are being planned, that a garden square is integrated into the house planning. He talks about urban design and building green garden squares. And he suggests that these squares 
shouldn't be too manicured and that the centre of them, he talks about it being planted in the manner of a wilderness and he suggests that the reason we should do that is because having lots of trees and bushes and kind of wild planting encourages birds. So he's, even in 1722, supporting planting for wildlife and that's certainly something we can still benefit from and gain from doing. He also really understood very well the value of plants and gardens for city dwellers for mental health. And he says in the book, whoever understands and loves a garden may have content if he will, because it will give him relief from a mind distracted or confined and it will increase their quiet of mind. And I think that's just such a lovely turn of phrase. I know myself very much, you know, if I'm gardening, I do feel that my mind quietens down and you kind of lose that voice in your head that you have all the time of everything you should have done, could have done and probably should have done differently. I think it's important that people know about Thomas Fairchild and know about these early nursery men because it's through their activities, creating and cultivating and propagating plants for sale, that plants get into our gardens. It's all very well intrepid plant collectors going out and collecting plants or plant breeders and plant specialists creating plants for themselves for their personal collections. It's only when plants become available to buy that the majority of us get a look in. And so I think we need to remember nurserymen and nurserywomen who do the hard yards to get plants into our gardens. Thanks, Fiona. Hybrid plants are all around us. A couple of my favourites, which I haven't grown, but I've bought the fruits in supermarkets, are pluots, or plumcots, that are derived from a cross between plums and apricots. But a really nice one that was actually bred here in Surrey is a thing called a kaylet, which is a kale that has clusters of leaves like Brussels sprouts all up its stem. And it really is derived from a cross, a hybrid between Brussels sprouts and kales. And uh, I can thoroughly recommend it as a very nice winter vegetable. Keen listeners to the show know we've been partial to a winter tipple or two recently. We've made cocktails and slow gin from the garden with Mark Diacono, while organic grower Anna Greenland helped us make a firecracker of a drink to warm the cockles. Anna's back this week with something a little less feisty, but just as delicious. Elderflower cordial. A memory that I have of elderflower actually is um, when I worked with Raymond Blanc at Le Manoir. And it's such a special plant that they always wanted to utilise it in the kitchen in the spring. And so they used to ask the chefs to stop off on their way to work when they were coming in on shift and pick from the roadsides <laughs> so you know the chefs would turn up with these bags of elderflowers for the kitchen for that day and you'd go into the kitchen and there'd just be elderflower everywhere so um yeah it was a very special plant to them and I think it is to a lot of people I really love elderflower as a plant for various reasons. I mean, it's very, very delicious as a drink, as a cordial. In the spring, you get these lovely blousy flowers, white flowers. And then in the autumn, you get the berries. So 
as long as you don't pick all the flowers off, which isn't advisable in the spring, you'll be left with some lovely berries towards the end of the summer going into early autumn. And the elder has been steeped in folklore for centuries, really. So it's quite a magical plant in the English countryside. In folklore terms, the earth mother is said to reside in the elder. And if you're going to cut an elder tree down or harvest from it, you need to ask permission of the earth mother. (laughs) So if you're looking to plant an elder in your garden, it's a pretty easy plant to grow. It will tolerate sort of partial shade. I've actually got one growing that's in a hedgerow behind a garage. It doesn't get very much sun at all. It's sort of on the west side of the garage, so it only gets very late afternoon sun, and it's really prolific in its flowers and berries. So it will take full sun, but it'll also tolerate shade and still be productive. It doesn't like to get too dry, um, so sort of fairly moist roots. And if you're going to plant it, then you can buy them as bare root whips, which can be planted from sort of autumn through to early spring when you would plant other bare root trees, really. And other than that, it's pretty self-sufficient. You can get some lovely different varieties. You can get, there's one called Black Beauty, one called Black Lace, which has got very dark black looking leaves. And then the flowers have a really pretty pink blush to them, which is something a little bit different. And you can still use those flowers for your cordials and elderflower champagnes and whatever you're going to make with the flowers. But they are very attractive and Another nice reason to plant an elder is to bring in all the pollinators that love the flowers. And then, of course, the berries are brilliant for the birds um, in the autumn. So if you're looking to create, you know, a wildlife garden, then it's a good choice. And it works quite well in a mixed native hedging context. You'll often see them sort of sticking up out of the hedgerows. So you can tame them a little bit by pruning them back. They'll bounce back very quickly. If you, you know, you have a smaller space and you don't want it to take over, they'll take quite a hard pruning. So yeah, in terms of making the elderflower cordial, I really love a recipe that Anna Jones um, has written. There's a few different ways you can do it, but hers is lovely because it uses rose petals as well. And elderflower and rose are sort of flowering around the same time in sort of May, early June. So it's a really nice start to your foraging season, the elderflower, as it's quite an early flower. Ideally, you want to pick the flowers on a sunny day because the perfume is a little bit stronger then. And you want to make sure that all the bugs and things disappear before you start to cook with them. So with Anna's recipe, she makes an infusion with the flowers and she uses lemons as well and rose petals. So she puts them all into a bowl together. So looking for about sort of 12 heads of elderflower, which is about 100 grams, a couple of lemons, and then a head of a rose that you have grown yourself, not one that you buy from a flower shop or something because they're often sprayed. And you pour over 500 millilitres of boiling water and you infuse all of that. And that sits for about 36 hours with a tea towel over the top. And then you press all the kind of juice out of the flowers and the zest and the rose petals. And then you add your sugar. So it's about 325 grams of caster sugar and some lemon juice, 125 millilitres of lemon juice. And you boil that all up together. And that makes your cordial, basically. Because there's no citric acid in her recipe, it lasts for about a month in the fridge. 
If you want to make a cordial that lasts for longer, has a longer shelf life, then a lot of people do use citric acid, which kind of preserves it for longer. And in that context, you would boil up sugar, water, add your citric acid, and then plunge the elderflowers in to infuse into that sugar syrup for anywhere between a day. Some people leave them for four days to get a really strong flavour and then bottle it that way. So there's a few different ways. I've made Anna's recipe quite a few times and I love the addition of the rose to that. I think it works really well with the elderflower. Another thing actually that I really like to do with it, which is moving away from the cordial, is making elderflower kombucha. And kombucha is a fermented tea drink, which was very popular sort of in the States for a long time, but is now creeping in over here. I was brewing it years ago and people were horrified um, when they came to my house that I had these scobies, which is the culture that you use to brew the tea with, which looks like a bit like a mushroom. People were terrified of it. (laughs) But I think now it's becoming more widespread. And you can do lots of lovely things with kombucha in a secondary ferment. So you brew the tea and then you can put different herbs and things into it to flavour it. And kombucha with elderflower and some lemon balm is a really lovely drink. So if anyone brews kombucha, definitely consider using elderflower in that as well. It's a kind of an all-rounder elderflower. It's not just the cordial that, you know, it's what we tend to know it best for, but it does have these other properties as well. I love it in that sense. Can't wait to give that a go myself. Thanks, Anna. Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget you can visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or look at our show notes for more on anything we've talked about. And if you learned something new today or are feeling inspired to get outside yourself, then please leave us a review. It helps us spread the word and help more people make the most of their green spaces. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. 
Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.